Uncover, unmask, understand. You're listening to Uncover. I'm Joyce. Uncover is dedicated to presenting the narratives, opinions, and perspectives of those who are affected by the COVID-19 outbreak in and beyond China. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Medium by searching Uncover.2020. We're also on WeChat with the name Uncover 一中人 The COVID-19 pandemic has posed major challenges to higher education institutions all over the world. More than 1.5 billion students and youth across the globe are affected by school and university closures. Students and parents have been concerned, to say the least, not only because of, of the novelty of the virus. And the changing information of the outbreak, but also because of a series of policies and short notices、uh, from universities that they had to react to quickly. And of course, for many higher ed professionals, the past few months have been overwhelming too. They had to make quick decisions despite a lot of uncertainties, which is often. Very difficult. Universities had to move instructions online, move students out of the residential halls,、um, deal with the lost income, and in particular for those universities that rely a lot on international mobility and cross-border exchange, the COVID-19 impact is even greater. We have seen the widely implemented measures of. Travel restrictions and border control, which has made it extremely difficult for some of the foreign and study abroad student populations. So, how are universities, especially those in China and the U.S., responding to these challenges? How are student affairs professionals navigating the crisis? Early last month, we spoke with three higher ed insiders. Two of them worked at New York University Shanghai or NYU Shanghai. David Pei is the dean of students there, and Judy Lee, the assistant dean of students. And the third guest is Ariel Tan, who works at California State University Long Beach. In our conversations, we talked not only about their university's crisis response, but also their personal reflections throughout this process. Now let's listen. My name again is David Pei. I'm the dean of students for NYU Shanghai.、Um, in my capacity, I'm in charge of setting the strategy as well as oversight of the. Co-curricular experience for students, in many ways, the voice and the advocate for student issues amongst the university leadership. So I'm Judy Li. I'm the assistant dean of students. I oversee the student life office. But basically, during the past two months, I think I work very closely with David on some like crisis response or emergent plan, like、uh, reacting to the outbreak. What has been the biggest challenge or frustrating aspect of working to respond to the situation since the outbreak started? 
I think that the outbreak has not had any sort of linear ability for us to respond. In most crises, you sort of know how to move along. So the crisis happens, you make a decision, you then jump straight into the aftermath and follow up and the next step. But for us, I think that the change has been so rapid in so many different directions and it's unprecedented for anybody in terms of its response where we were working on normally a contingency plan that offers B solution, maybe C solution. I feel like we're working with, you know, creating plans that have a B, C, D, E, F solution because you just don't know which one you're going to be having to use. So it does require us to think about scenarios that normally we use our previous experience to help formulate and guide our decision-making. Um, but here, it's very hard to do that. Even with experience that we've had with SARS, I think that the reaction now is at a different scale and at a different level. I think to me, the most frustrated point was how to deal with different people because, you know, different people have different comfortable level when they deal with the uncertainties. So some people, they may intend to take more active approach or like aggressive approach and someone may lean towards more conservative. So I think the frustrated point for me is because I serve as a liaison to different government or officials or different authorities, like usually their levels are different. So some, they may give this kind of directives and some may give this. So sometimes it may make like inconsistent. So this inconsistency just make me sometimes frustrated. We have to explore and like navigate ourselves. So how do you deal with the changing policies when it comes to traveling and immigration? And so for example, like whether people coming from abroad need to be quarantined, how many days, and also the delay of the Gaokao, right? How do those policies impact your decision making? And how do you try to work according to those changing policies on, on a daily basis? seeing every country needing to make decisions in response that I, not everyone would either agree with or not everybody understands in full course. But I do think that when you do see the comparisons of what's happening, when you're not willing to go with a more aggressive approach, you are running into still seeing increasing numbers of spread um, and that there is not really a sense of how or when issues are going to get contained. I feel whenever I saw a new like uh, policy or new directive, I will definitely like try to understand what that means and what will be the direct impact to us. That's always will be my first approach. When I saw like they shut down the, yeah, like, Actually, that was middle night. So, and it was quite interesting that afternoon I received two calls from like some local officials who haven't called me for a long time. And they basically just ask some very general and random questions. So I got very confused. And that day, like I tested David said, I received these two calls and I can understand what they want. And at that night, at the middle night, right, 11 something, and then boom, they released that, like they're going to put the travel ban. So it's kind of uh, shocking to me, but then I understand like why I received that two calls that afternoon. 
when I saw the Gaokao, so I said, oh my God, we probably cannot start our welcome week on time because, right, usually it's take women and a half for Gaokao schools to come out. If they can have Gaokao at the beginning of July, it seems the Gaokao schools won't go out until middle August. Then how can we admit Chinese students by the end of August? We don't want to separate our students for our welcome week. So that means we have to decide either to post the welcome week for freshmen and to let other students to start for semester first, or we need to make other decisions. My next question would be, how does the information sharing work? Because obviously, Judy, you have to um, communicate frequently with the local authorities. And David, I guess you have to communicate frequently with the New York side. How does that communication work? Well, I wish that the, there was a universal system as much as we, I think, have defaulted to WeChat. Not everybody else does. And so I think there's a lot of much more quicker information sharing in China. In New York, I'm reliant on sending emails and then setting up meetings, so it's still very old school. And then when you need to get a critical message to someone, you just don't know when they're going to reply to it. Um, and then there's delays and then there's misunderstanding or things that come up that you were surprised by. Yeah, for my side, I rely very much on WeChat. <laughs> so there are different groups. I think I definitely were in more than 10 like, WeChat groups receiving different kind of information. David is more like working on the international global side. Uh, but I feel the difference for my side is the Chinese local government is really, really like a big fan of all the data. So they're really, really keen about all kinds of data. Sometimes I feel it's a little frustrating to us because it's so much work we need to spend on like to collect those data. But on the other hand, I would say Sometimes those data is helpful to our decision-making process. It do benefit us, like for the Chinese students returning, right? So like after we start our approach, it's very clear to us to understand how many were at Shanghai, how many were out of China. I think recently they're also collecting the data regarding international students because of the travel ban. I think they basically need those data to make their later decisions on how long they want to hold the travel ban and when they want to release them. So it's another round of data collection. What do you think is the short-term and long-term impact of the outbreak on international higher education, especially for, for example, our kind that relies on big exchange between uh, students from different countries and different cultures? Like, how do you think that the outbreak is? impacting that in the future? The biggest two areas that come to mind is the travel restriction, and so people can move freely um, across, then that obviously creates a hindrance of the ability to even have people in your schools and in your country for, for that exchange of, of both ideas and for the cultivation of the student. And then the second piece with it is the economic um, aspect uh, with the potential sort of global recession and sort of the, the global economy, some countries and their exchange rates will change drastically. We're already seeing this. We have students who are concerned about whether or not they are able to continue paying for their education um, because the value now of their currency has devalued against the dollar or against the RMB. 
um, and therefore they might have to take time off um, or wait it out to see um, if they can actually afford to return back. From my side, I think um, I would anticipate the next year the applicants, the Chinese applicants to NYU Shanghai, maybe will go increasing a little bit. I do hear from some parents, they saw like how young, like uh, uh, studying abroad students, right? How hard it was to, to getting them back, mm-hmm. right? So for the uncertainties, I think some parents, they may take more like conservative approach. Some st- parents, they may think we, are, we will be the ideal like solution for them if they still want to seek American higher education, but they don't want to send this kids abroad. To follow up on that, not just in the field of higher education, but in the field of cross-border cultural or educational exchange, do you think that it's going to pose a challenge? Because I think the outbreak reveals kind of the darker side of globalization, of how we have Mm -hmm. this oversharing and openness of border and the mobility and all that, and that's really impacted the containment of the the virus. Do you think that because of the outbreak, people are going to be more critical or skeptical of the good things brought about by globalization and if that will impact international education in the globalized era? I think what's actually shown us is the fact that we are so connected globally. Um, that this impact is the reality of what we live in now. I think that everybody's realizing that they may need to reassess um, more actually cooperation in order for this to be able to avoid future um, incidents. So I actually think we'll see a need for more cooperation rather than a decrease. My feeling is I think this outbreak gives lots of people a time to slow down and to reflect and also to um, think about like what education means and what the, mm. the, the, the globalization means. So I think in the future, we will definitely see a more diverse like response or answers mm. to that. I feel I already see the trends of homeschool other things. So I feel this outbreak like may like create a new channel for people to think about like uh, because I think someone may still prefer the in-person like education model because if you really want to travel international abroadly, it do require some like financial support. So some people, they may transfer to other means, right? Mm-hmm. If they found the online education is more beneficial to them, they may turn to that way. Always, like after some crisis, there always will be some like new opportunities or new chances. We have SARS. So after SARS, right, people begin to get used to online shopping. Before SARS, very few people do online shopping because they don't see the benefits for that. So I feel maybe this outbreak can bring more opportunities um, for online education um, for the future. Mm-hmm. More of a personal question, David, you did digital learning for, for the whole time for your doctoral degree. Like, what was your experience with online learning? Oh, I loved it. I mean, I, but it's different also because I went into the program knowing that it was going to be digital from day one. Um, and I also 
needed to do a program that was efficient in terms of time management for my doctoral program as professional. Um, you know, we had to balance work life, um, and that was a good way to do that. And then I also have one of the questions being, how do you think the outbreak is impacting students from different social economic background differently? Because when I'm communicating with the students、um, studying abroad who are trying to come back, they're telling me all those stories about buying tickets and how. A parent reserved like ten different flights for their child to be able to come back because it's very possible many of the flights can be canceled in the in the following days. And then you know to buy ten different flights, it's like ten thousand RMB, and、yeah. it's really a test of their economic、uh, or financial ability. Like the the possibility of them coming back depends on how much money they have, right? And then how, for example, like research money has also impacted students who previously relied a lot on different grants and different funds. So I guess just some comments and thoughts on how this outbreak is impacting people differently. I do think it is an economic disparity issue in terms of the fact that they could afford. At one time, to purchase all these tickets, it, it, it's again、uh, a cultural dynamic as well. Because I, I would say, you know, parents would be very supportive in the Western context of wanting to do a similar thing. But you know, those that can't would say to the kid that they would need to figure out how to make it work. So it, it's a good and bad thing.、Um, you know, I think from a tertiary level, even kind of digging deeper down, it's going to be teaching the kid that in the future you solve your problems by just buying your way out of things rather than. You solve the problems by、right? sitting down and really assessing whether or not this is the right decision. My last question is: Looking forward, what's something that you're most concerned about, and what's something that you're most hopeful about or looking forward to? My concern is that there's no end in sight、um, in terms of when this is going to pivot.、Uh, my thing that I'm looking forward to is also that there might be a sense in sight. Um, so I feel like I'm just ready for this to be over with.、Um, I want to get back to a normal life and a normal routine, and I just want the world to hopefully not be in so much、um, chaos and in so much pain. So I would not say concern or hope, but I think、uh, appreciate this experience. Everybody has no choice. If we can avoid, everybody wants to avoid. But if we cannot avoid, we have to accept the reality and. To learn and think about it, and then grow from it. So the, as the university administrator, it's again like what kind of person we really want our students to be. This is Ariel Tan, and I'm currently an area coordinator at、uh, California State University, Long Beach. So I work in residential life.、Uh, basically, it's your typical res lifer position. It's a very tricky situation for you because you are a former Chinese international student studying in the U.S. And after graduation,、mm-hmm. you have been working in the U.S. You came back to China for a trip, so you knew and experienced the whole situation in China. When you went back, the situation was not so severe 
in the United States, but then it got worse and worse. Um, mm -hmm. And working at a university, you also got to see how people's and university leadership's responses to the outbreak have developed and evolved throughout the process. Can you just briefly maybe describe a little bit how that developed? What are different stages in terms of how they handled the situation? Of course. Um, so I just want to first, I have a small disclaimer that one, a lot of things uh, from my own perspective, my own observation is not necessarily an official or analytical perspective of the higher education as a field. So overall, I think in the US, uh, my personal summary is like there's three stages. The first stage is like seeing this as a regional concerns. Um, so there are lots of international students uh, like me who either were traveling in January. So their travel plan was in affected in their own timeline based on the outbreak in China. So with that being said, a lot of university has been issuing out different statements and supporting Chinese students because of the rise in xenophobia in North America or even across the world. And towards end of February, um, in my particular school, we end up having our own travel ban where we are prohibiting any kind of travel to a few countries who at the time were facing this epidemic, uh, namely like South Korea, Italy, China was also on the list, Iran. But this is like what I see as the seeing the coronavirus as a regional concerns. And then you start moving into a cancellation phase, is what I like to say, because for many people, like towards end of February to like even early mid-March, everything just canceled. Conferences were canceled, events were being asked to be sold. Because our conference. <laughs> yes, our right. So um, for context, so Joyce and I have um, two presentations actually in a conference in May um, that unfortunately was canceled. Again, just like a season of cancellations. And I think this is also the rise of people be more aware of what social distancing means and the importance of social distancing. Going back to the original question, uh, basically schools are also start canceling class in person, uh, which is a big distinction because I think a lot of people feel like, oh, school just like closed. And the answer is no, this school was still functioning. We just like we're moving instruction from in-person to online. And then I think the turning point really comes after the World Health Organization started announcing COVID-19 as a pandemic. In March, they would just like start having this overwhelming amount of information about COVID-19 just start coming out of nowhere. And this is when a lot of university, if not all the university, start moving instructions online and start to issue move out notices for our residents. And what has changed is not only people's understanding of how serious the COVID-19 disease is, but also people's attitude towards masks. Um, oh, my that, God. Okay. <laughs> I know that you have struggled with this a lot. And I know that, you know, recently the U.S. government has started to encourage people to wear masks. And for a long, 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 long time, what I've been hearing is always been, you know, like, we don't need to wear it. That's what the government tells us. That's what the health authorities tells us. And that's the information that's been conveyed um, from like, for example, university leadership to students, staff members, as I talked to some of them, right? So now that message has definitely changed. Uh, so Joyce and I are pretty close. We, we've been having a lot of this discussion about masks. 
So my academic background, uh, as far as my research goes, I actually study like biculturalism. So a lot of the the things or I study or I pay a lot of attention to is like cultural marks or cultural identities. So there's this professor uh, in Stanford. Her name is Hazel Marcus. So she basically kind of shared that, you know, culture, basically just a pattern of behavior, pattern of, you know, values and thoughts. And so for me, what's really interesting, like you said, that, you know, mask wearing has now became a cultural mark. Because for me, the perception is whether or not wearing mask is effective it's like a statement what's interesting in this COVID-19 time is that whether or not this the statement is true or false has became like a cultural acceptance so even in the beginning when people were asking like why are people wearing masks you know all these questions a lot of articles actually kind of jump out had to kind of unpack a how like you know wearing masks in Asian culture is more acceptable. Asian folks wear masks in a variety of different things other than just getting sick. And then two, you have people who come out with like psychological like analysis, right? Talking about how you know wearing a mask is a psychological cue and behavioral push, so that you are more uh, aware of your hygiene as well as your preventive care. And I think it also boils down to like a, a sense of authority. This is like the most interesting thing for me uh, is that it doesn't really matter what the science says, because you're going to have confirmation bias wherever you are. You're just going to believe in your trusted authorities. And I think as of today, actually, a CDC has you know recommended individuals to wear, not necessarily masks, but like some sort of coverage on their face. Uh, reason being, again, um, medical masks are definitely a, sh- a shortage. The medical masks can be preserved for medical staff. Didn't you also say that when you were trying to get masks in your neighborhood, is it made in Hubei or something like that? So right now, unfortunately, you cannot buy any masks from stores. What ended up happening to me is that so my uncle and my aunt live in the U.S. And my aunt happened to know someone who was basically selling masks from China in Hubei. We share with them our inquiries and they ship masks from China to the U.S. and this person helped distribute among the communities. What's interesting is the mask I got was produced in Hubei and the production date, because they have all the, the little dates on the package, is February 13th. Basically, what I'm trying to say is a lot of Chinese people in China are trying to ship masks to the U.S. So my partner is a, is a white male because of me i also asked him and urged him to wear masks and he was reluctant to wear masks at the beginning right yes he was so here's the thing um one i kind of explained to him why i think wearing masks is important and effective two he's also a biology major Mm. So as he started doing more research on his own, he also more or less um, support my theory. Because the idea is that wearing masks is not only protecting us, it's protecting our community. So I live in the residential hall. So even though I have an apartment, the apartment is within, quote unquote, the dorms, which means that every single day I see a lot of people. Every single day I'm anticipated to be exposed to a lot of people who I don't know where they've previously been around like the the same week of like March 19th um, we already have community transmission here in the city so that's one other reason why I was really concerned I personally feel like I am being exposed to a lot of pathogens because I talk to students daily I go to school daily I do not know what school students had previously experienced 
if something happened to me, something is also going to happen to the students. Well, let's talk about your、um, personal kind of emotional journey throughout the process. Share with us your your、um, feeling when you、mm-hmm. see that you know you think certain things should have been done, certain measures should have been taken, but they were not.、Um, so I'm glad you asked that because my theme for my March professional reflection is this idea of my professional ethics is fighting with my personal instinct as a student affairs professional, as a staff working in university. When students ask me all these questions. My professional ethics ask me to say things in align and in support of my school because one, I don't want to be the person who's spreading rumors. Two, I don't want to be the person who quote unquote is inducing fear and inducing panic among the public. And most importantly, I definitely don't trust myself in terms of like public health and medical facts. So I tend to rely a lot on professional expertise. Now, if the professional expertise within our student health services or within our local CDC says one things, I don't feel confident to challenge as by saying is. Falls at least in a public setting. So with that being said, when students and even my colleagues approach me and asking me these questions in like February and March, my answer was very, very quote unquote professional and official. In the sense, I'm majority of the message I'm sending out is in alignment with the university because again,、um, but personally, from like a you know survival mode or like a personal instinct perspective, I definitely was scared and worried, and for a while I just frustrated and upset. There was a couple things I did, and one of them is so basically, when people have concerns or people ask me about my mask wearing habits, I kind of explain to them my thought process. I encourage them to make their own decision, and if they need mask, I'm happy to share one mask with them. I start doing some projects on my own,、uh, basically do what I can. For example, when we so we give student two weeks to move out, and the student have until the 27th of March to move out, and they were supposed to fill out this form, kind of indicating like when are They planning on moving out, things like that. Basically, what I did, I wore mask, I wore gloves. If the student didn't fill out their form, I went to door by door and just kind of talk to them, like, "Hey, when are you planning on moving out?" You know how in the、uh, in the early stage of the, the outbreak in China, you have these like committee members in, in different villages using、mm-hmm. like, a huge speaker or megaphone, telling people, "Do not gather, go home, stay at home," things like that. That's how I felt, which honestly really helped my anxiety. Right. I guess this leads to my final question, which is, what do you think the long-term impact of the outbreak is on specifically higher education, especially those that are focusing a lot on cross-cultural and cross-national exchange? A lot of the students and parents were disappointed or dissatisfied with how the situation. Was dealt with by the American universities, basically the measures being too few and too slow and too insufficient. There were articles discussing how that might impact, for example, universities in the U.S. and U.K. that traditionally rely a lot on the Chinese students' tuition fees. 
So I think there's definitely damaging with money, just straight up. The economy in the U.S. is not doing too hot, uh, won't be doing too hot for a while. So that means that schools inevitably is experiencing uh, budget cuts again, similar to what happened to the, in the last recession. So with that being said, universities need to start looking for additional income one way or another. And it's hard for them to manage this international relationship now, given that what has happened. But I also am hopeful in the sense of the definition of global citizen. So global citizen is like really buzzword within like internationalization of higher education but I think what people don't realize is that a part of being global citizen is about being aware of your local community so you are not again you can't be insulated from different parts of the world because you choose to go cross one border over another so I've been in the U.S. since I was 12 so I've been here for quite a long time uh, but me understanding or being aware of these policies that's not that's not translate a feeling of support. It does not translate a feeling of belonging. I'm hopeful in the sense that maybe there's a reflective opportunity for those who are interested in doing cross-cultural communication to really think about how does one's understanding of different culture translate into everyday applications. Thank you for listening. This is Uncover. Again, our website is uncoverinitiative.home.blog. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Medium by searching Uncover.2020. We are also on WeChat with the name Uncover 一中人 Please rate us on Apple Podcast and leave us a comment. If you have a question, feel free to email us at 2020.uncover@gmail.com. Hope you enjoy the show. Take care, and until next time. Where you always go, when you're sleeping all your day, dicks your nose all night.